Well, a very good morning to you all. Uh, and we have visitors, and I want to warmly welcome you if you are visiting with us today. We trust that together we may sense the presence of God and leave as changed and enriched people. I also want to welcome our visiting speaker, Reverend Moore Kismet. You've been here before, Moore. Yep, and was, we're letting him back. Yeah, there we go. Um, uh, we, uh, Moore is uh, the, in, in charge of the Cornhill training course, which meets uh, during the academic term uh, up in Kirkpatrick Memorial. Uh, we're delighted to have him with us this morning, and we await his leading of worship and exposition of the scriptures. I'd like to thank Bill for his welcome, um, and it's good to be with you today, uh, sharing in worship together. As he said, I run the Cornhill Training Course, which is based uh, in Kirkpatrick, not too far up the road. Um, there are probably one or two people connected with here who've had some connection with Cornhill. Uh, Jeffrey Blue is the obvious one who springs to mind, um, who's not left you all that long. Um, he came through the course before he went on to train at Union, and a number of people do that. Uh, for others, it's just a way of uh, perhaps checking out whether teaching the Bible is something they should be doing long term. Um, so it's a very practical course where we uh, teach people how to handle God's Word and um, how to communicate it uh, effectively. Um, we have a website. If you want to check us out, you haven't heard of us before, then, then please do that. One of the privileges of the itinerant preacher, which I suppose is effectively what I am, is that um, I often get to choose what I speak on, um, but not so today. Um, I wasn't trusted with that. Uh, so we're continuing um, in the series that you've been in, in the book of Acts, and coming to the end of Acts chapter 2. Uh, so perhaps you could turn with me to that uh, in your Bibles. Uh, it's on page 1094, uh, Acts chapter 2, and uh, just the final six verses of this chapter. Acts chapter 2, reading from verse 42. This is God's Word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Amen. And we give thanks to God for his words. Let's pray together. 
Father God, we bring these offerings to you, acknowledging that everything we have comes from you. We thank you that you have blessed us so greatly in this part of this world. And as we bring these gifts, we pray that they will be used not just here, but beyond to help extend your kingdom. Father, we thank you for the many efforts that are made, especially over these summer months, to spread the good news of Jesus. And we especially think of uh, what happens throughout this island on which we live. We thank you that we still live in a part of the world where we have freedom to tell others of Jesus. We thank you for all the various beach missions, uh, camps, and other forms of summer outreach which have already been going on. And we want to pray for those that are currently happening and have yet to happen. Father, we pray that, especially as children and teenagers, hear the Bible explained as they hear a message which is not the message of the culture around us. We pray that they will see that this is really your truth and that this is truth to live by. Father, we pray that as your word is taught, that will be done clearly and effectively. We pray that as a result, there will be many who come to put their trust in you and many others who are built up and established in their faith. Though we're conscious that for uh, the children and young people growing up in our midst, it is a difficult climate in many ways. Much of what they hear around them is not pointing them to you. In fact, is pointing them in completely the opposite direction. And so we pray that you will indeed ground them in your truth. We thank you for the way in which time away on camps can be really helpful in that regard. But we're also conscious of the challenge as people come back and come away from that environment. And so we pray that you will protect what has happened, that you will protect the seed that has been sown, that as people come back enthused and enthusiastic, that you will sustain them, that you will help them as they adjust to what is more normal experience, but help them to see that you are still there in the midst of that. Help them to remain in your word. Help them to find that time to spend with you each day that will sustain and nourish them. And we pray as well that they will find encouragement and fellowship from others in whatever place it is from which they have come. Father, as we think of especially children and teenagers who've heard the gospel and will hear it over the next few weeks, we are conscious that they are not the only ones who need to hear this message in this land in which we live. And so we pray that you will indeed be gracious to us, that you will pour out your spirit and bring more people back to you. As we think this morning of the, the challenge that comes from your word, as you read of the early church, we're conscious that that was a beacon of light, drawing people to you, showing something different to the world around. And we pray, Father, that you will enable us to be like that, 
that as people come into our midst, they will see something that is not completely replicated in the world around them, that they will see a genuine love and concern and interest for one another that's not simply there for what we can get out of it, but is willing to devote ourselves, even sacrificially, to looking out for the needs of others, to being that kind of community where people don't fall through the cracks, where people's needs are known and met. Fathers, we think of that, we are conscious that as we meet together like this, there are many needs in our midst. We do not know them all, but thank you that you do. Thank you that you know what is in every heart and what is troubling each one of us, because we recognize that no matter how good our lives, there are always things that are not quite how we would want them to be. There are always concerns, some of them huge, others not so big, but nonetheless, they do cause us to fear at times. They take away a sense of peace or calm or security. But Lord, thank you that we can bring them to you, knowing that you do want to help us in the midst of whatever challenges we are facing. We realize, Lord, that you don't always take the problems away, but we pray that you will indeed give us your strength to cope, and that you also will bring people alongside us who will help us as they bear something of our burdens. As we look out beyond ourselves, we see a world that is in desperate need of you. And at times, Father, we confess that because there's so much that is wrong, we can feel very overwhelmed by it and almost <clears throat> back away, almost stop praying for this world because we can't imagine how to solve its problems. And yet, Lord, we thank you that as we look at this world, a world that is far from perfect, it is still going. You have sustained this world over the millennia of hist history. We thank you that you are the one who puts governments in place, you bring them down, you put others in their place, but you still ensure that this world keeps going. And so as we pray to you, we pray that more would come to acknowledge that you are the ultimate ruler. More would come to see that it is only when we submit to you that we find any level of peace and security. For those areas of particular conflict, we do pray especially for your people in the midst of them. We pray that they will be beacons of light, even as bombs are going off around them, even as they're having to flee from their homes. Well, we cannot imagine what that would be like, but we pray that you will sustain your people in the midst of that, and that you will even build your church in places where there are forces that would love to stamp out the gospel, would love to stamp out any trace of your people. Father, thank you that you promised that you will build your church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we pray that for ourselves, you will strengthen and encourage us. And for this world, as we pray for it, we ask, Lord, that you will continue to bless, you will continue to 
Raise up those who love and honour and follow you, who make a difference by the lives that they live, by the values that they set, by the laws that they bring in. And ultimately, Father, we ask that more will indeed come and bow the knee to Jesus and recognise that it is only in him that we have any hope in this life and that we have ultimate hope for the future. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen. As we turn to God's word, let's pray for his help to understand and apply it. Father, we do need the help of your Holy Spirit. Because our minds do not naturally turn to you or to your truth. At times we want to shy away from what you're saying to us. But we pray that your Holy Spirit will work in us. Right now, for us to see the truth of what your word says. For us to see how that challenges us. And we pray that you will give us the grace to accept it. For Jesus' sake. Amen. If you were starting a church from scratch, what would be the non-negotiables? Would you need to have good coffee, good music, a warm welcome? Would you need good provision for children and teenagers? Do you need good sound and AV equipment? Are comfortable chairs important? Do you need a large car park? Should there be a lot of church-based activity during the week or none at all? They're interesting questions, and in some ways they're not unique to churches that are just starting out. Maybe not questions you come up with every week, but we do have to think about our priorities in church and make decisions about the future direction of things based on those priorities. As we look around our province, we see the church in decline. There may be a few places which seem to be bucking the trend, but even those churches which are growing numerically are not necessarily growing because vast numbers of people are coming to faith. We're living in days which are increasingly difficult in terms of the proclamation of the gospel. In the past, many people who wouldn't have called themselves Christians might still have seen Christianity as a force for good. But that belief is no longer so widespread. In fact, the spirit of our age seems to want to characterize the Christian faith as oppressive and potentially very harmful to people's mental and emotional well-being. In many ways, though, nothing has really changed in 2,000 years since the church came into being. The first century Roman Empire, while it might have seen many advances, was not particularly open to the idea of there being only one God, nor did it like the idea of self-control or restraint as against indulgence and self-promotion. So the verses we're looking at from Acts 2 this morning are in many ways timeless because they show us the priorities of the early church. They show us what was non-negotiable for them in an age when the surrounding culture was not seemingly conducive to the advance of the gospel. But it is very important that we see these verses in context, and you'll know the context if you've been here in recent Sundays. 
The church came into being through a remarkable work of God on the day of Pentecost, something which was unique in salvation history. The disciples didn't plan for something amazing to happen at Pentecost. God did the miracle, and God formed the church through the preaching of the gospel as people repented and believed what Peter preached to them on that day. Since Pentecost was a one-off event, we're not to sit around waiting for it to happen again. It is, of course, still possible for God to work by His Spirit in extraordinary ways, as He has done at various subsequent points in history, in revivals in many parts of the world. But while Pentecost was just a a one-off event that we're not supposed to wait to see again, neither are we to think that if we follow the priorities of the first Christians, then we will automatically experience the exponential growth that was seen in the early church. But it is interesting to note at the very end of this passage that in verse 47, it says that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, it's vital that we understand that salvation is God's work. He's the one adding to their number. It's not something that can be humanly engineered. But I don't think it's reading too much into the text to say that having outlined the priorities and the characteristics of the early church, Luke then puts in that final sentence about the Lord adding to their number, almost to infer that as God adds to the church, this is his endorsement of it. It's a bit like saying that since it has set right priorities, this is a body of people who can be trusted with new believers. Now, we have to be careful that we don't automatically conclude that all growing churches have set right priorities and that shrinking churches have set wrong ones. The New Testament warns us that many people will go after those who tell them what they want to hear. And generally, they'll be going after a distortion of the gospel. But at the same time, is it perhaps worth asking ourselves whether we are the kind of church to whom God could entrust new converts? Because they will be nurtured in an environment where God's priorities are to the fore and where God's people are living as they should be. So what then does that look like? What do verses 42 to 47 of Acts 2 tell us about what should be at the heart of a church? Well, I think we can sum up these verses by saying that the first Christians were devoted firstly to God and His Word, and secondly, that they were devoted to one another. You'll have noticed that uh, the heading given to the sermon by someone, not me, um, possibly Damien, is devoted. And that ties in very well with what I want to say this morning, because these first Christians were devoted to God and His Word and to one another. That word devoted, uh, which Luke uses in verse 42, is a strong one. It's not just that these new Christians were interested in these things. These were their passion. If you asked one of their non-Christian friends or family what they were really keen on, what they were completely committed to, 
They would say the things that we read in verse 42. Now, of course, verse 42 doesn't say that they devoted themselves to God. Because if it did, then that would beg the question, well, what does devotion to God look like? Is it just sitting around having happy thoughts about him or waiting for him to put thoughts into your head? Their devotion to God led them to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, which is the first thing we see mentioned in verse 42. Because it was as they listened to what the apostles taught that they came to know God better. Let's not forget that it was the teaching of the apostles which brought people to faith. They weren't just zapped on the day of Pentecost. It was as the gospel was preached that the Holy Spirit spoke that truth into people's lives so that they not only understood it but accepted it. But in order to grow in their faith, they needed to know more. One sermon, however good it may have been, was not going to be enough to sustain them and keep them trusting in Christ. It's interesting, isn't it, that the first mark we see here of people having genuinely come to faith in God is that they have a desire to know and understand His Word. Now, obviously, the early church didn't have the New Testament, which is why Luke refers to the apostles' teaching. They had to listen to what God was revealing to these men about what it meant to live as a Christian and what it was that the cross and resurrection had achieved. And that's why we read here in verse 43 about many wonders and miraculous signs being performed. These are God's way of authenticating the words of the apostles. It's God's way of saying, yes, I am with these men in a unique way, and you can listen to what they say and treat it as coming from me. This is my word they are communicating. In a way, the miracles showed that what the apostles were teaching wasn't just a new religion that they had made up. Now, for us, we have all the apostles' teaching that we need in our Bibles, and so we don't have the same need that the early church had for fresh revelations. We have as much here about God as we need to know. There's more in the pages of our Bibles than we will ever fully understand. And so we should be wary of those who claim to have fresh revelations for the church today, especially if what they're saying contradicts what God has said through his apostles in the past. And because we don't need to add to what we have in the Bible, we have less need for miracles today doesn't necessarily mean that miracles never happen now, and certainly they do seem to in parts of the world where the gospel is starting to take root and spread, and where people almost need confirmation that this is something which is real. But I think it's important that we don't take the fact that miracles may well happen in some parts of the world as meaning that they must happen for us in the same way or on the same scale. After all, we must remember that miracles on their own will not sustain a lasting faith. The person who trusts in Jesus because he has miraculously healed him or her has to realize that there is a much deeper need than physical healing. It's a need for forgiveness, which Jesus can do something about. But that involves facing up to the horror of who we are, and necessitates submitting to Christ for the rest of our lives. Sadly, some people want a miracle 
And when the miracle happens, if it does, they just want to leave God alone then. They've troubled him for the miracle, but that's all they want. When in fact, as we read of the miracles happening here, it's to authenticate the word, to point people to who Jesus is and to our ultimate needs that is met in him. It's in God's word that we see the solution to our greatest problem. And we see that perfectly set out. There's nothing more that needs to be explained to us about God's plan of salvation. So we don't need a fresh revelation of God. What we must ensure is that we are committed to his word as he revealed it through his messengers in the past. That's why it's good to make the most of every opportunity we're given to read and study God's word and to hear it explained. It's why the Bible must be at the center of what we do as a church. It should be the first place that we turn for guidance when we have difficult decisions to make, to try to understand what God has to say. It should mean that when we meet in home groups, we're not there simply for mutual encouragement and support, but we're there to be encouraged and to encourage one another in God's Word. That has implications for those of us who teach the Bible in in whatever context within our church? Is there evidence of devotion to God's Word in the length of time that we spend in preparing before we lead a study or, or give a talk? Or do we just think that we'll kind of muddle through as best we can? Or what about the time and effort that we devote to teaching the Bible to our children and teenagers? Do we think it's important not to overdo the Bible contents so that we can keep them at least semi-engaged. I'm not saying that there's no place for fun, but could we be said to be those who are encouraging a devotion to God's Word in our children by the way we seek to engage them with the great truths of that Word? It was good to hear just earlier on how at Castle Rock at Sism they were taking chapters of the Bible that are not common ones and looking at them with children to show how all of God's Word speaks to us, not just the few favorite bits or familiar stories. For those of us who have children still living at home, do we open God's Word with them at any stage? Or is that just something that we do or maybe don't do on our own in private? Would our children say that we are devoted to God's Word, that it's really important. It's at the heart of who we are as His people. The first Christians were devoted to God, and that showed itself in their devotion to His Word. But it also showed itself in their devotion to one another, because they seemed to understand from the outset that God brings us not just into relationship with Himself, but into relationship with our fellow Christians. If you think about it, it doesn't really make sense to say you're devoted to God, but you can't accept some of those whom he has called into his family. If he is perfect in all that he does, if he is worthy of our devotion, then he must be perfect in terms of those whom he has chosen to save. Now, we don't want to get too starry-eyed about how perfect everything was in the early church. People still had difficulty getting on with one another, as we can see from the epistles in the New Testament. But there was a commitment 
to be together. Verse 42 says that they devoted themselves to the fellowship. I don't think that that just means that they had the equivalent of tea and coffee after church. Nor does it mean that when they got together, they pretended that everything was sorted and that life was problem-free. Because if you look on to verses 44 and 45, you'll see that it says all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, before we start to think that this is so far removed from life today that we should ignore it altogether, it's important to remember that this didn't mean that no one owned anything and they all went off and lived in some sort of commune. What happened was that when needs arose, those who were in a position to sell something to help meet those needs did that. They didn't treat their possessions as being exclusively theirs, but as something that could be used to help fellow believers. But they obviously needed to be made aware of the needs in order to be able to meet them. So this shows that the lives of these first century Christians were closely interconnected. They weren't keeping one another at a distance, but were sharing their joys and struggles. And they were happy to help one another, to care for one another, because they realized that God had put them together and had given them to one another. Fellowship is not simply about smiling to the person beside you on a Sunday morning, although that's a good thing to do, but it's about knowing one another and caring for one another, being aware of the needs of others and where we're able to, then doing something about those. It's not a case of doing something for someone because of what they might then do for you. It's not like sharing lifts to work or school where you take your car one day and I'll take mine the next. Friendships in the church shouldn't work that way. We don't do something for someone in order for them to pay us back in some way. We shouldn't even be helping those in need so that we can kind of almost put them in our debt and they're eternally grateful to us. And we're not just talking here about money. We can give our time or our skills to others in need. A true fellowship of believers is one where people shouldn't feel isolated or neglected. And it shouldn't just be somewhere where it's down to the minister or the paid staff to make sure that everyone is cared for. That doesn't mean that when someone is sick or suffering in some other way that everyone in the church has to go and visit them. But it is vital that in all our churches, we make sure that, if you like, there are other people who are looking out for one another, that there's someone in the congregation who's looking out for you, who knows something more about you. And let's not forget that the best care that can often be given is not by a minister. It may be to my shame, but I have to confess that in my years of parish ministry, I never went round to someone's house and made their tea for them. They might have been glad of that, I suppose. But uh, uh, often it's one another, those who are near us, who can help us and help us in ways that really do help in practical ways. Even if that means an element of sacrifice. But there's a further aspect of that devotion to one another, which should be characteristic of a true church. And it comes in verse 2, and it says that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. 
Again, in verse 46, it says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now, the reference to breaking bread probably does relate to celebrating the death of Jesus, similar to the way that we do when we come together in a communion service. It's interesting, though, to note that there's a a public aspect to their fellowship and worship. They met in the temple courts. There's also a more domestic aspect as they met in homes. And often it's true, isn't it, that we get to know people much better in smaller groups within the setting of our homes. But it's important that we do come together as we do, like this on a Sunday morning, and express our commitment to one another as we worship God together. For the early Christians, they recognized that what united them was their belief and trust in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they took every opportunity that they had to meet together for that. And as they did that, they praised God for his amazing love and generosity to them. It should be the same for us. We may not be celebrating the sacrament of communion together every Sunday, but as we meet, we are reminded of the enduring spiritual realities that unite us. And so, coming to church shouldn't just be something that we do if it suits. It should be our top priority. Does that then mean being at church activities every night of the week. After all, the early Christians met every day in the temple courts. The rest of the New Testament doesn't seem to show this as a pattern that continued indefinitely. Apart from anything else, the temple was destroyed in AD 70, so there were no temple courts to meet in after that point. But I still think there's an interesting challenge which comes from how these Christians behaved in relation to one another you get the distinct impression that they liked being together. Whereas sometimes, in some of our churches, you'd wonder whether that was the case. Now, I understand that we can be so involved in activity around the church that we neglect our families or other God-given responsibilities. But at the same time, If we say that we can only commit to coming to church on Sunday mornings, most Sundays, and we're happy not to see anyone else from church, apart from our immediate family, for the rest of the week, what does that say about our level of devotion to the church family in which God has placed us? If we don't really care, if we have no contact with anybody else from one week's end to the next... We live in days where people are becoming more isolated. How many movies or TV dramas do you watch where people seem to have a very tiny number of other people in their lives? I know that probably keeps the cost down. You don't have to pay such a large cast. But I'm not sure that it's totally unrepresentative of many people's lives. That sense of disconnectedness is probably why people join clubs or teams or get involved in community activity. And actually, when people get passionate about something, they can end up doing it nearly every night of the week. The first Christians realized that they had the best news in the world. They were thrilled by what God had done for them. They lived in a culture that was 
not embracing what they believed. And, and so they needed one another as well for that encouragement of, of saying, yeah, we've got it right. This is the right thing to be enthusiastic about. And as they met together, they showed their devotion both to God and to one another. But there's one final thing which resulted from their devotion to God and to one another. It's the very last word in verse 42. They devoted themselves to prayer, or as some translations put it, to the prayers. It seems to be a suggestion that they weren't just quietly praying on their own at home, but they were praying as they came together. I don't know if there's any significance in that being the last thing in the list in verse 42. But I do wonder if it's the last thing that characterizes us as churches and as Christians. Are we committed to one another in prayer? And how do we show that? Some people, it's not possible for them to leave their homes and they do pray faithfully for God's work and God's people where they are. But for those of us who are able to get out, could we be said to be devoted to coming together to pray? Or do we think that coming to a prayer meeting is really only for the very keen, the very committed, or those who find it easy to hear the sound of their own voice, or who have the confidence to pray in front of a few others. Are we secretly quite relieved when we have what we think is a very valid excuse not to be at some opportunity to pray at church? Acts 2 doesn't say that a few of the believers were devoted to prayer. And so these words must, I think, come as a challenge to all of us. Prayer, and indeed coming together to pray, shows a commitment to one another, a devotion to one another, where we are prepared to carry the burdens of others in prayer. And prayer is also a means of drawing us closer to others. I don't know if you've had the experience, it's certainly one that I've had, is as you sat praying with someone, you just connect with them on a slightly deeper level. You realize that the things that truly matter to you matter to them as well. They have the same relationship with God through Jesus. And that, that brings a connection that is, is deeper than even what we can have just in, in normal conversation at times. Perhaps even more importantly, coming together in prayer shows our devotion to God because it's a recognition that we need his help for everything we do as his people. As we pray, we are expressing our dependence on God. I wonder if sometimes, looking at our churches from the outside, would people say that we seem to be very reliant on ourselves and what we can achieve? We would never say that prayer was a waste of time because we know that's not a Christian thing to say. But what do our actions say about what we think about prayer and its importance? The early church had a big impact on the world around. 
Far from being a turnoff because people were really committed to God and His Word and really committed to one another, that was something that was attractive to the world that was watching. Verse 47 says that they enjoyed the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. If we as a church are truly fulfilling the role that God intends for us, then we should be attracting people. And if we're not, we need to ask why that is. Is it because we hold too lightly to God's Word? Is it because that they don't really hear anything different as they come among us? Is it because we don't take advantages of the opportunities to come and hear. So if we're a bit indifferent to it, why should any of our friends be that interested? Is it perhaps because we're not that sacrificial in our concern for one another? We're happy to keep things at a fairly superficial level, have a nodding acquaintance with those around us, because if we got to know them too much, that might be too demanding of our time or our resources. Or are we casual about prayer and real fellowship? Do we just leave that to the really keen people while we're happy to be on the periphery of things? There is, of course, a danger with a sermon like this that there can be so many things going on in our heads about ways we feel a bit convicted or ways in which we perhaps should change that we can feel slightly overwhelmed and think, there's too much there. I can't do anything about all of those things today or this week. Can I urge you not just to dismiss everything we've been thinking about this morning? Perhaps just think about one aspect of what I've been saying about what devotion to God and His Word looks like, or devotion to one another looks like. Can we be those who actually honestly before God say, well, okay, here's something that I feel challenged about Here's something I can do something about, even this week. It will not be the same for everyone. But if we actually take God's Word seriously, then He can change us. He can change the people that we are. He knows we're not perfect. The early church wasn't perfect either. He's not trying to get us to a state of perfection because we've not reached that in this world. But He does want us to be different He wants us to be a vibrant community who care about God and his gospel and who are living that out. And as we do that, we are making a difference. Not that everybody's flocking through our doors, but that there are people who see something of that and who are attracted by it because they see an authenticity there that the world around isn't able to replicate. They may look like they're looking out for you, but actually... It's really only when it suits. It may look like the gods of this age have something to offer, but they only have something for a limited time. We have the best news of all. Is that something that we're really excited about? And as we live that out, is that making a difference among us? Let's pray together. Let's just take a moment in quiet before God to think about maybe one thing that he's been challenging us on and to bring that before him.
Father, as we look honestly at ourselves, we are probably very convicted about how lightly we can sit to, to you, to your truth, especially to cultivating that relationship with you and with others through prayer. But Lord, thank you that as you challenge us, you do that for, for our good and for your greater glory. So we pray that you will help us to take that challenge, not to let it crush us or overwhelm us, but rather to encourage us. Thank you that you want to give us the power to live for you. We, we can only do it in your strength, with the help of your Spirit. But thank you that you promised that to us, and we pray that we will indeed see something of that being lived out in our midst as we genuinely care for one another, as we genuinely are committed to you, to your word, and to prayer. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.